0: Welcome to Lit Poetry, the podcast where we go on a journey of discovery, reading, analyzing, and discussing great poetry from around the world. Poetry is worth it because the reading and writing of poetry is a revolutionary act that has the potential to transform both the reader and our world. Kubla Khan, Kubla Khan, Kubla Khan. His very name should be enough to send shivers down your spine and feelings of impending doom. Down the corridors of history you can still hear the sounds of his approaching army and his fearful horsemen charging into battle. Listen carefully and you may still be able to hear the clash of swords or the screams of the fallen. The drums of war beat on, and the flames of memory fanned to a higher pitch as we recall the way he burnt and pillaged his way from country to country. Kublai Khan. The man, the general, the tyrant. But then, also, the cultured man of mystery. Mixed in with all his violence are also the sounds of birds singing in the lush garden grounds of his palace the decadent noises of frivolity being made by his guests feasting on exotic foods in his dining hall, or perhaps even the soft, effervescent sounds of music and giggles drifting out from under the crack in his bedroom door at night. Just who was this historical enigma? Well, unfortunately, even though we're about to listen to a poem written about him, I'm not sure that's a question we'll truly be able to answer here on this podcast, After all, this poem was actually the work of a Eurocentric 19th century Romantic poet who liked to write his verse after long sessions spent with an opium pipe. But hey, that doesn't mean the poem's not great. It is, but it's just not history. May I present you with the rather enchanting poem, but historically embellished, Kubla Khan by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, read to you by Robert Sean Leonard.
1: Kubla Khan. In Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. So twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round. And here were gardens, bright with sinuous rills, where blossomed many an incense-bearing tree. And here were forests, ancient as the hills, enfolding sunny spots of greenery. But, oh, that deep romantic chasm which slanted down the green hill athwart a cedar and cover, a savage place, as holy and enchanted as air beneath the waning moon was haunted by woman wailing for her demon lover. And from this chasm, with ceaseless turmoil seething, as if this earth in fast, thick pants were breathing, a mighty fountain momently was forced, amid whose swift, half intermitted burst huge fragments vaulted like rebounding hail or chaffy grain beneath the thresher's flail. And mid these dancing rocks at once and ever, it flung up momently the sacred river. Five miles meandering with a mazy motion through wood and dale the sacred river ran, then reached the caverns measureless to man and sank in tumult to a lifeless ocean. And mid this tumult, Kubla heard from far ancestral voices prophesying war. The shadow of the dome of pleasure floated midway on the waves, where was heard the mingled measure from the fountain in the caves. It was a miracle of rare device, a sunny pleasure dome with caves of ice. A damsel with a dulcimer in a vision once I saw. It was an Abyssinian maid, and on her dulcimer she played, singing of Mount Abora. Could I revive within me her symphony and song, to such a deep delight would win me, that with music loud and long, I would build that dome in air, that sunny dome, those caves of ice. And all who heard should see them there, and all should cry, beware, beware. His flashing eyes, his floating hair, Weave a circle round him thrice, and close your eyes with holy dread, for he on honeydew hath fed, and drunk the milk of paradise.
0: (laughs) So I thought I might start this podcast by discussing some of the historical context of the poem's genesis. Samuel Taylor Coleridge was a key figure within literary romanticism, a late 18th century movement that was influential up until the mid-19th century. The Romantics were a relatively small group in England that knew each other quite well. Kubla Khan, in fact, was composed while Coleridge was residing with William Wordsworth in rural England. The Romantics represented a voice in society that spoke out against the rationalism of the European Enlightenment. Instead of rationalism, the Romantics championed poetry that gave pride of place to the imagination, praised the beauty and the power of the natural world, and romanticised past historical periods like the Middle Ages. The reader can see all these qualities at work in Kubla Khan. In short, the poem focuses on the creative imagination with all its sublime powers and its limitations. And the poem explores the imagination by shining a light on the natural world itself. Nature isn't described as a rigid place of rules and regulations, but rather as a place of violence, beauty and power. The poem looks to a culture beyond Europe located in the distant past for its inspiration coleridge relied for his information about kubla khan on several narratives by early travelers from europe to the far east like marco polo and samuel purchase indeed according to legend coleridge was reading purchases 1613 book purchase his pilgrims when he allegedly fell into an opium fueled dream that inspired the poem but that's where the real historical musings of the poem based on purchases travel stop coleridge goes on his own fictitious and imaginary journey about kubla khan the poem is thus a deeply personal fantasy and a reflection upon european culture's limited knowledge of mongolian life So I want to focus in this next section of the podcast on the theme of pleasure and violence within the poem. Kublai Khan starts by declaring that it is a poem about pleasure. It begins to describe the Mongol leader's summer palace, along with all its sumptuous and exotic pleasures. Yet the poem quickly changes pace. Instead of describing exotic buildings and brilliant clothing, for instance, it focuses mainly on the river that flows through the gardens of the palace. Further to this, instead of describing that river in a gentle, beautiful way, it often describes the river's violent movements. Through these vivid descriptions, Coleridge argues that pleasure and beauty are neither simple nor uncomplicated. Instead, the poem illustrates how pleasure and beauty, often comes out of the conflict between these opposing forces and that they always contain some degree of violence and ugliness the gardens of Kubla Khan's pleasure dome might encompass twice five miles of fertile ground and gardens bright with sinuous rills but the speaker moves quickly beyond these pleasant places devoting only six rather formulaic lines to describing them in contrast. The speaker's energy in the poem quickly changes within the poem's middle stanza where the speaker starts to carefully describe what happens to those sinuous rills or small streams and they flow outward from the beautiful gardens the waters transform into a turbulent river which has cut a deep gorge into the earth its guises throwing up massive boulders the scene changes into a description of a savage place as holy and enchanted, as air beneath the waning womb was haunted by a woman wailing for her demon lover. This stands in stark contrast to the formerly joyous Sunny Gardens, which have turned into a haunted, uncivilised place. The disturbing description intensifies as the river continues its journey. The river enters mysterious caves, where its rushing sounds like ancestral voices prophesying war. From the bright gardens where it runs in little reels, the river quickly becomes a powerful and violent force, both holy and terrifying. Given the early descriptions, it would be easy to argue that Kubla Khan's pleasure must lie in the beautiful gardens at the start of the river's course, but Khan himself sees it otherwise. Kubla Khan's true palace is not in the gardens bright which are written about, where the river is peaceful. Instead, in lines 31 to 34, the reader learns that the shadow of the dome of Khan's palace hangs midway over the river, so that Khan can hear the mingled measure from the fountain and the caves. That is, Khan does not want to hear only beauty or only violence, he wants both. And the pleasure he takes, from his palace, presumably comes from his appreciation of the fraught interaction between the two. In other words, pleasure, the poem claims, does not exclude violence. Rather, it comes from the tension between beauty and chaos. It demands and includes both. The other major theme I wanted to explore here on the podcast deals directly with notions of rational thought and creativity. Though the poem describes Kublai Khan's palace and its gardens in detail, the speaker of the poem points out that these physical features are not necessarily literal. Indeed, the poem's mystic, dreamlike, opium-fueled tone seems to ask the reader to treat the speaker's descriptions as allegory for creativity and the human mind. People may act like they're in control on the surface, the poem seems to say, but dig a little bit deeper and human beings aren't all that responsible. And the tension between these two parts of the mind, the rational and the irrational, is where creativity comes from. To understand how the poem can work as an extended metaphor, first note how the description of the palace and its grounds focuses on the sacred river called Elf. There is no real river in the world called Elf. Coleridge invented it for the poem, but the name sounds a lot like the Greek name for the first letter of the alphabet, Alpha. This is an important letter in Christian theology. In the book of Revelation, God is described as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the source of all things and their end. In this sense, the river's name hints that it is symbolically aligned with God's creative power, which is both the Model 4, and the source of human beings' creativity. The speaker then describes the river's course in detail. Along the way, the speaker offers a few hints that the river is not just a symbol of human creativity. It also provides a map of the human mind, showing where that creativity actually comes from. The river begins close to Khan's gardens, which is important because at the time the poem was written, gardens often served as symbols of reason. They represented people's power to organize, dominate, and control nature. In this sense, the river begins with rationality, the reasonable parts of the human mind. The river ends, however, in icy caverns, measureless to man, where ancestral voices prophesy war. This seems like an image of the subconscious, which is violent, uncontrollable, and unknowable to the rational mind. Between the two elements erupts a mighty fountain, which could serve as an image of the meeting point between the rational and the irrational parts of the human mind. The results of their meeting are spectacular and strikingly human. In describing the fountain, the speaker personifies the river, making its bursts sound like fast, thick pants and heavy breaths or an exhausted or passionate person. Furthermore, the fountain throws shards of rock into the air, which the speaker describes as dancing. The fountain doesn't just randomly throw rocks in the air, but rather produces artful, choreographed motion. Together, this all suggests that the speaker sees the mind as something that is divided, with its two halves in tension, and suggests that creativity emerges directly from this tension. So on a side note, I just want to say a few quick things about the poem's form before finishing up our discussion. Kubla Khan doesn't have a set form, nor does it follow one of the traditional forms of poetry, like the sonnet or the ballad, that were in vogue at the time that it was written. On a basic level, there are three stanzas. The first has 11 lines, the second 25, and the third 18. The poem meanders, wandering between different rhyme schemes and meters over the course of its delivery. Indeed, the poem uses three separate meters or rhythms. There isn't always a clear reason why the speaker switches between these meters. In addition to this, the poem will establish an intricate rhyme pattern, only to switch immediately to a new one. In most poems, formal elements like meter and rhyme serve established rules to create a sense of order and regularity. In Kupla Khan, they do just the opposite. They underline how disorderly the poem is, how changeable and how irregular. Because the poem flirts with order only to abandon it, the reader has a sense that the poem is always on the verge of establishing a definite rhythm and rhyme scheme, but it pulls away towards something fresh. Something new, some new poetic pleasure. As a result, the poem's unusual and irregular form closely mimics the poem's subject. It certainly feels like a vision made up of fragments. One might interpret the poem's form as an image of the wandering, sometimes violent river it describes, or one might take it as an image of Kublai Khan's pleasure palace with its dense mix of both beauty and violence. The poem doesn't insist on one interpretation or another in its formal strangeness the poem encourages the reader to develop their own interpretation of its structure Kubla Khan is a beautiful poem that contains all the elements typically found in romantic poems from this period, from Orientalism and an interest in the past to the images of a utopia, pleasure dome versus reality, and the unusual contrasts of details. Along with the gothic imagery and setting, Coleridge shows us two kinds of creation, the worldly one and the poet's imaginative creativity. Where the mighty ruler described in the poem fails... Coleridge, the poet, can succeed where reality is transcended and transformed through the tools of the imagination. It is interesting to note here that Coleridge actually said that the poem, in its current published state, was only actually an unfinished fragment of what should have been a much larger piece of work that he wanted to complete. In other words, he had a larger original vision for this poem, far more epic in scope. Despite this fact, the poem remains fantastic, and this fact should become a lesson to all those artists and creators out there. Sometimes it is impossible for things to always come out the way you originally envisioned them in your head. This common experience can be an important part of the creative process. People should embrace it. Instead of struggling to make something exactly as they originally intended, they should allow art to evolve into what it wants to be. Great art is often fluid. Sometimes art has a mind of its own, and artists sometimes need to get out of the way and let a piece become what it in itself wants to be. Indeed, this approach can be a liberating and rather more dignified approach to the act of creation. So it's time to wrap up this week's episode and say goodbye. I love the epic nature of this poem and I hope you love it too. The fact that I was able to find such a perfect piece of music to support it was rather miraculous in its own right. The muse certainly seemed to be with me when I found it. Next week we'll be venturing even further back in time with Ode on a Grecian Urn by John Keats. So make sure you tune in for our next episode. Feel free to leave a comment in the comments section below. And if you're interested in more of our work, you can check it out at our website, www.litpoetry.com. Until next week, I'll see you later.
1: Kubla Khan In Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. So twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round. And here were gardens bright with sinuous rills where blossomed many an incense-bearing tree. And here were forests ancient as the hills enfolding sunny spots of greenery. But, oh, that deep romantic chasm which slanted down the green hill athwart a and cover. A savage place, as holy and enchanted as air beneath a waning moon was haunted by woman wailing for her demon lover. And from this chasm, with ceaseless turmoil seething as if this earth in fast, thick pants were breathing, a mighty fountain momently was forced amid whose swift, half intermitted burst huge fragments vaulted like rebounding hail or chaffy grain beneath the thresher's flail. And mid these dancing rocks at once and ever, it flung up momently the sacred river. Five miles meandering with a mazy motion through wood and dale the sacred river ran, then reached the caverns measureless to man and sank in tumult to a lifeless ocean and mid this tumult Kubla heard from far ancestral voices prophesying war the shadow of the dome of pleasure floated midway on the waves where was heard the mingled measure from the fountain and the caves it was a miracle of rare device a sunny pleasure dome with caves of ice a damsel with a dulcimer in a vision once i saw It was an Abyssinian maid, and on her dulcimer she played, singing of Mount Abora. Could I revive within me her symphony and song, to such a deep delight would win me, that with music loud and long, I would build that dome in air, that sunny dome, those caves of ice. And all who heard should see them there, and all should cry, beware, beware. His flashing eyes, his floating hair, Weave a circle round him thrice and close your eyes with holy dread, for he on honeydew hath fed and drunk the milk of paradise.
0: You've been listening to the Lit Poetry Podcast presented by James Laidler. For more podcasts, poetry videos, and other useful resources, visit our website at www.litpoetry.com. Thanks for listening.